starting the call. All right. We have. So thanks, everybody, and welcome to our call today with Dr. Akil Shahani. And Akil's somebody, uh, I call him a, a brother from another mother. Um, but, uh, you know, we've known each other, I think, 16 years, maybe even longer this year. Um, and also, Akil is a shareholder in, in one of our companies, Worldwide Business Intelligence, and uh, a partner in, in a number of things we do. Uh, the Shahani family name is synonymous with education in India. Um, so if you're Indian and you don't know the Shahanis, then you're probably not Indian. That's what I always tell people. And this year, I'm very pleased to say Akil won Educator of the Year in India. And in a country of over a billion people, 1.4, I think, um, that's no mean feat. So very heartfelt congratulations for that, Akil. And he's going to share some aspects of leadership uh, from his perspective this morning. So all over you to you, Akil. Thanks a lot, Mike. And I just want to uh, make a slight correction. We're actually uh, brothers from the same mother because my mother's adopted uh, Mike as uh, one of her sons. So I won't say different fathers, but <laughs> we are uh, quite close. I mean, and we've known and loved each other. And he's been sort of a friend philosopher guy to me for a very long time as well. So, but it's great to see so many enthusiastic faces here and uh, whichever part of the world you are in. And uh, and also, I've also noticed that it seems a lot of you guys may be already very experienced entrepreneurs. So some of the stuff I'm going to talk about leadership may be a little obvious, but I hope you guys get all get value out of it and uh, we can have a fun uh, conversation for the next uh, one hour or so. Right? I'm going to start by sharing my screen and hopefully technology will not let me down. Uh, Mike, is that visible? Perfect. Okay, great. Uh, how to be a great leader? Uh, obviously, we know the only other great leader we know of is King John Will, who actually was not really that a great leader. But how can we be fantastic leaders in our own uh, uh, in our own businesses or our own environment? So let's start with destroying a couple of myths. When you look at leadership, and I'm hoping this ah there you go. Most of the time, when you think of mind, who are the entrepreneurs you want to be like, you all say, hey, I want to be like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or uh, Jeff Bezos, and these are the people that I admire and I want to be more and more like. But are they really that admirable? Let's talk a bit about uh, them, the inside story behind the media hype and the uh, autobiographies or the biographies. So we all know that uh, Steve Jobs himself was actually really, really autocratic. He was really the sort of person he would walk into uh, his engineer. Like let's say the, there was a, uh, there was a uh, engineer was working on a project for the last few years. Uh, Steve Jobs said, this is the worst piece of crap I've seen and cancel the project without listing. He used to fire people. Talent used to just leave the company. A lot of people don't know this. Actually, Steve Jobs tried to shut down the iPhone project before it started. In fact, a lot of the engineers actually created a team and actually uh, created up with the iPhone in spite of Steve Jobs. So the iPhone did not come out because of Steve Jobs. It came out in spite of Steve Jobs. So that's one thing. Elon Musk, of course, is everyone's favorite. He is known to uh, post tweets on his account and the share price of Tesla just goes up and down based on any casual conversation. Again, he's, I think, had three or four wives. He's had uh, top management leave him. Uh, of course, he smoked uh, a doobie on uh, radio. And it gets very, very erratic. Jeff Bezos, on the other hand, in fact, looks a bit like Dr. Evil from the uh, Austin Powers movies, if you look at that. And uh, uh, slightly... Uh, Although Mike looks a bit like him, but he looks cuter, of course. But uh, Jeff Bezos himself, basically, as we know, have you, we've seen uh, stories about Amazon, the horrible work conditions of Amazon, and how people have actually suffered in terms of not being allowed to go and take a toilet break and actually go and pee in jugs just to 
sort of uh, keep on uh, supporting the uh, their work environment. So Jeff Bezos actually is a very horrible, in all these cases, all these key leaders have actually created extremely uh, toxic work environments inside their own organization. But then you ask me the question, but Akhil, these guys are billionaires. How do they succeed in spite of being toxic leaders? You notice all of these people succeed very well in an environment which is basically the technology industry in Silicon Valley, where the, you have a lot of people, uh, a lot of investors just give you piles of money just to, uh, as long as you can promote a great product. So in spite of that very toxic environment and the toxic way of running their businesses, they work very well in the tech industry in Silicon Valley. Try being a toxic leader in any other country in the world, in South Africa, in Australia, India, uh, any other part, with any other uh, group of people, especially knowledge workers, you will have people leaving your company in droves. So don't assume that being a toxic leader or being that Jess Bezos or uh, Steve Jobs is a great way to uh, run your business. So seriously, read their autobiographies and biographies for entertainment, but don't necessarily follow them as a leader. So let's talk about what are the leadership styles that exist. There are many of them out there. So let's talk about the first one, uh, autocratic, which is actually the most common one that we see, especially when you look at uh, traditional uh, businesses in Asia, where you have a family, patriarch, where it's really more, again, my way or the highway, uh, I will make decisions as a leader, I will not uh, talk to my team, I just expect my team to follow orders. Now, uh, Napoleon, classic example. But again, understand one thing, it's not that being an autocratic leader is bad generally. It works very, very well in certain environments, especially if you are a military leader, you need to make sure that you're autocratic. You may not have time to actually decide to get consensus when you're defining a military uh, objective and you want to get work done, when especially there's a lot of, uh, let's say, enemies uh, surrounding you. Uh, definitely when your company is going down the tubes and you need to do a quick turnaround, sometimes you have these turnaround experts who come into a company and sort of revamp the company. They don't have time to actually get consensus or work done. They just get things done very quickly. Again, it's a my way or the highway process. Another thing, again, is that if you're running, let's say, a McDonald's franchise, where every aspect of the franchise is mandated in terms of saying that how long the fries have to be cooked for, at what temperature, every burger has to be made exactly the same. You don't have the ability or, let's say, the, the reason to actually tell your frontline workers, okay, think independently. Maybe you can create a burger in a different way. You can come up with your own creativity. You can't you have to come up with a straightforward process that is repeatable and movable. So being autocratic as a McDonald's franchise owner sometimes will work better because you have no leeway to let people think around you. You have to just make them follow orders. So that's one leadership style. Let's talk about some more. All right, bureaucratic. This is, I think, unfortunately, most of us have dealt with government officials who are just bureaucratic. They will just follow things by the rules. They are just, you know, they will not follow what people want. They will just say, okay, this is what the rules said. We will follow the rules, no questions asked, and we will just continue uh, the same things going. Now, I know that uh, most of us have dealt with government officials, but even when you look at, let's say, large bureaucratic organizations, when you're looking at government-owned organizations or even privately run traditional organizations, sometimes being a bureaucratic manager helps because it may not help in terms of helping other people but following the rules and just keeping ahead low and working sometimes helps people move up the seniority ladder because they follow the rules of the company. They just make sure that all the boxes are ticked and that's it. And some, so sometimes being bureaucratic is not fun, but it works in certain organizations. Transactional, this is our uh, Jack Welch classic example. Like, okay, as we all know in GE, 
uh, he had that model, it said that uh, every quarter, every year, they will analyze the bottom 5% performers in the organization and fire them. No questions asked. They did not make a lot of effort to train them or do anything. They just say, like, if you either you perform or you're out. So a lot of American business, especially when you're looking at a lot of uh, management theory, like Frederick Taylor and all spoke about management theory, where they focus on, let's say, shareholder or shareholder value, not stakeholder value. They say the focus of the business is profits for the business owners, right? That means that we will be very transactional. We don't care what happens to the employees. It's more like, okay, focus, 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 perform or perform or die. So again, this unfortunately is actually getting more and more uh, prevalent in the world as the focus on shareholder value becomes more important. So people say, I want to be like Jack Welch. I want to be like, uh, uh, what was the term? I think uh, Neutron Jack, where I will just come in, I will fire people if they don't perform. But again, it does not develop people in the uh, organization. There's a very low trust environment because if you do not show any loyalty to your team, your team will not show loyalty back to you. So again, uh, it works a lot in investment banks. You look at, let's say, a bank like Goldman Sachs or other places where, again, you are basically uh, known and your bonuses are based on how well you performed in the last quarter. They don't care who you are or what you want to do, what your potential is. You perform and you get rewarded. Don't perform, you're out. That's it. Transaction, no questions asked. All right. This is uh, some of you may have uh, may recognize this uh, lady. Uh, she is uh, Sarah Blakey. She is the uh, founder of Span. And uh, in fact, I had a great uh, watched a great interview about her recently. Uh, she, of course, she's a, uh, one of the youngest, or maybe the youngest female self-made billionaire. And uh, some of you may know Span. Span basically was uh, underwear, or let's say uh, underclothing, which actually helped shape you and make it look better. So people like myself. Uh, who need a little help uh, looking thinner than we are would actually wear, let's say, a Spanx vest, which would actually compress the the love handles that we have. So she came up with this idea when she was 22. And again, it just took off and she's done very well. What is interesting is that when she said in the interview is that, look, as a young person who's 22, 23, I just had a great product idea. I had no idea how to run a business, how to manage people, how to, let's say, uh, grow a company. So she said, the smartest thing I did was actually hire senior managers or people under me who actually knew what they were doing. And I just let all the decisions be made by them, which works very well in maybe her environment where she said, okay, look, I will let the company be run by my team and I will just sort of focus on product development. It is great, but and it works very well if you are a very young uh, startup founder or let's say much younger than your team member. However, what will happen is that until you actually take more control of your own organization, your company service start getting disorganized. And this is what happened with Sarah as well, because she started by uh, depending a lot on her managers, but at some point she started taking more control after a few years and said, okay, let me focus on the growth of my, my organization. Because in the early years, every manager had their own ideas as, as to how the business would grow and it got a little more disorganized. So that's I say works very well at the early stages, but it's not a great long-term strategy to have uh, as a leader. Democratic. Now, this is uh, this guy, some of you guys may know or not. His name is uh, Jamie Diamond. He is uh, the uh, CEO, the long serving CEO of JP Morgan. What is interesting is that uh, if you compare the CEOs of all the large investment banks uh, in the US, uh, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, uh, Merrill Lynch, and the other ones, he's the only one who still survives. Every other bank went downhill, lost a lot of money, and uh, they kicked out their CEO. 
he survived because he actually had a very interesting way of uh, running his organization. In fact, he's one of the most respected investment bankers there, uh, out there for uh, a couple of generations. Mainly because what he did, he said, look, I'm actually, like when the whole financial crisis happened, before the financial crisis happened, a lot of investment banks were just going crazy investing on, as you all know, the CDOs and the credit default swaps. I'm not going to get into what they were. But the thing is, is that they were just going after getting the maximum amount of profit. What Jamie Dimon did was that he spoke to a lot of his managers, he spoke to a lot of his team members, and they said, look, should we go down the path of just buying more and more uh, credit default swap to make sure that we get uh, good fees and good returns? His manager said, look, the problem is, is that what goes up will come down. So don't go crazy buying all these credit default swaps that these other guys are doing. So in the years preceding uh, 2008, a lot of other banks made a lot more money than JP Morgan, and JP Morgan didn't earn as much bet. But when the market collapsed, JP Morgan was one of the few banks that were standing in good stead and had a good balance sheet. So Jamie Dimon, in fact, is actually a big uh, believer in developing his people. He also gets a lot of, uh, 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 he has a great uh, team around him, and he's got uh, people working with him for the last, I think, uh, 10, 15 years who've been with the company, and that's very rare in the uh, financial world because where people just keep on jumping to higher and higher salaries, mainly because he makes sure that he gets the best uh, team members around him and he actually listens to what they have to say. Of course, the downside of that is that if you have decisions based on a democratic approach or let's say a more growth by consensus, it actually could slow down the decision-making process. If you go to see, uh, let's say you take a Goldman Sachs, which actually bought a lot of CDOs and then uh, might have cash out, made more money than JP Morgan because J.P. Morgan also ran a little slower. So in some cases, you want to work quicker and go back to the autocratic leader point of view when you say, look, I want to get things done very quickly. I don't have time to think or be democratic. That works well as an autocratic leader. But if you're democratic, you have to assume that because you're taking more and more people's opinions, you can actually run the business much slower process. You actually will not be able to maybe grow as quickly. Again, every leadership style works in different environments. Right? All right, uh, this guy, some of you guys, maybe many of you don't know him, this fellow is called Ratan Tata. He runs uh, the Tata Group, which is India's largest conglomerate, uh, the group. Uh, Tata Group basically has got a holding company called Tata Sons, which uh, Ratan Tata uh, uh, heads, he's the chairman of uh, Tata Sons. And under that, they've got subsidiary companies. They run uh, Tata Consulting Services, which is the largest uh, IT company in India. They've got Tata Motors, which makes automobiles. They've got Tata Chemicals, they've got Tata Steel, or a whole range of, they run hotels, the Taj Hotels. Uh, they actually run a, around almost uh, 27 uh, different companies under the Tata Sons uh, holding company. Now, obviously, Ratan Tata will not have the ability or let's say the need to actually go down and understand the operation of each company. His purpose is to focus on the overall growth strategy of the organization, and he has to trust people below him to make sure that they uh, grow the organization. Again, uh, Ratan Tata does not focus on quarterly numbers or dates or like, you know, uh, annual goals. He's more saying, okay, this is where the Tata group is going to go. We want to develop into, let's say, a more technology-focused company, but that is over the next three to five years. Then he will give the general strategy to his various uh, CEOs of the various companies, and they will then start moving in that direction. Again, uh, it works very well if you're running a very large conglomerate or you have a lot of flunkies under you in different areas, but Unfortunately, again, it goes back to the idea of uh, democratic consensus times 10, because you are focusing more on strategy and you still have to wait for a lot of feedback 
from your juniors as to how things are moving. So you will see a lot of inefficiencies and bottlenecks. And in fact, this happened with the Tata Group, where a lot of the new innovations, a lot of the new opportunities which have happened in India have not been taken by the Tata Group. They've got billions of dollars available. However, because of this more strategic approach and the large uh, scale that we have, they're not able to go after the individual opportunities that other companies have been able to uh, take. So it, it does have its uh, downsides. Of course, all that being said, it's always great to be the head of a multi-billion dollar conglomerate and just focus on the easy strategic stuff. But you know, most of us have to roll up our sleeves and get the work done. All right, let's, hang on, next. All right, there we go. This of course my uh, favorite type of leadership. And I think uh, if a lot of you are in uh, the uh, training and coaching industry, this is something that you guys look at. So of course, I think I don't have to introduce this gentleman, but what? Uh, let's talk about Mahatma Gandhi, how he, uh, how he worked. So as you know, uh, in the, he actually was leading the independence movement of India uh, before uh, 1947. However, don't forget that when he uh, was leading the movement, he did not have employees, he did not have flunkies, he was not paying anyone's salary. He had to get a, a team of different leaders who all had their own needs and their own uh, motivation to get together to a common goal, which is try to get the British to uh, quit India. So to do that, he said, look, I'm not going to be a leader in the traditional sense. I'm not going to give orders. I'm not going to sort of say, well, this is your target, now go about do it. What he did is said, look, I'm actually going to coach all of you leaders to become better leaders. And of course, to try to have a combined vision to sort of get the British to uh, get out together. So the idea basically is that he said, look, I will focus on developing my own leaders and the, uh, the cause will take care of itself. If you look at, let's say, a lot of professional firms, like let's say a McKinsey or let's say uh, Accenture, other uh, large firms like that. You have a range of partners, a lot of, let's say, senior directors, but there's no, maybe one person who's, let's say, the, the head of the organization, but again, they have a limited term. They may be uh, the managing director or the managing partner for, let's say, a few years, and then another person takes over. But the point is that they say, look, we will focus on coaching and developing our own leaders or the people below us, such that the overall strategy of the firm is, uh, uh, is kept, uh, but of course, what happens is that since every leader is being developed in the organization uh, based on their own strengths and weaknesses and what they need to do, sometimes it's very difficult to keep discipline because there's no one strategy that they all may follow. They all may have different strategies in their own mind, and that actually will cause a little bit of uh, disconnect or um, lack of coordination in the organization. And you can see a lot of these large uh, legal firms or large uh, consulting firms tend to move very slowly. Uh, to adapt to new changes. In fact, uh, if you want to get, uh, let's say, uh, consulting done or let's say support in a new technology or a new area, you probably don't want to go to McKinsey or some of these older firms because they work in a certain way and very difficult to, like we say, uh, getting a large tanker, uh, which is moving in a certain direction to change direction. It takes a lot of time for that tanker to uh, change direction. But coaching is actually a great uh, leadership strategy and it works very well if you have a lot of very, very smart people around you and uh, you just want to get a group of people to work together uh, as a group without that much, uh, let's say, authority in your hands. Okay, so let's, the next one, ah, transformational. That is, uh, this guy is uh, Sam Walton. Uh, he transformed uh, Walmart from a single uh, outlet in Benton, uh, Arkansas, into the largest offline retail company before Amazon came along and sort of uh, spoiled that. But what is interesting is that uh, he actually focused on transforming employees. It's not just saying, I'm going to change my people, I'm going to transform them for uh, just for their own benefit, just like, let's say, what coaching was. 
coaching was focusing on transforming and supporting their uh, uh, team members based on their own strengths and weaknesses. What Sam wants to do, what a transformational leader does, says, look, there's a direct goal that we all have to go to. I will try to develop you guys to better serve the needs of the goal. Not develop you for the sake of developing you, but if you are able to develop yourselves to support the goal better, and I, I do that by keep on giving you more and more difficult projects to deal with or more and more challenging uh, uh, goals to work with, I will transform you into better leaders. But the whole point, again, is that I'm transforming you for the service of the company, not to make you a better person or a better leader like you would see in the coaching organization. Agreed. So this works very well in a lot of companies. In fact, uh, a lot of people are now, when they're looking at stakeholder capitalism, when they're saying, look, I don't want to be transactional, where uh, people live and die based on their uh, targets, but uh, we actually want to develop our people to be more, more loyal. Transformational leadership is actually getting more and more popular. It's a good leadership model to have, especially when you have a growing company. However, don't forget is that you will always have people dropping out. Uh, their individual needs may uh, be lost in the uh, overall growth. But again, that's, I mean, there's a trade-off. I and mean, you can't say that one type of leadership is better than the other, or let's say I have to focus totally on my uh, people's needs or not on my people's needs. Everything is a spectrum. It's not uh, either or, it's not black and white, like most things in the world. So what sort of leader should you be? Well, I think there's no right answer. I can't say that okay, you should always be a coaching leader. You should always be, uh, let's say, autocratic or, or should be transactional. The point really is, is that what environment are you in? You need to, so there's actually a concept called situation leadership, right? Situation leadership means that you as a leader need to understand what environment are you working in? What's your situation? Are you running a factory where you have a whole bunch of these factory workers or a franchise like McDonald's where they, you don't want them to think independently, you just want them to follow the orders and follow the process because your success is based on how repeatable your process is and you don't want independent thinking. That works very well in certain environment. Conversely, if you have a whole bunch of people in your organization which are very brilliant and they have their own ideas, in fact, you may actually learn from them versus them learning from you. Then being, let's say, a more uh, coaching-based leader or democratic leader makes sense. So when you look at situation leadership, which is what I'm talking about, you need to understand the situation that you're in and then what's the best leadership style to uh, apply there. Now, of course, it makes sense for all of you to start developing certain leadership styles yourself. You can't be, okay, I'm only going to be a transactional leader, numbers-driven, I'm only going to be a coaching-based leader. If you are able to look at some transactional aspects and looking at some coaching aspects and maybe look at some autocratic aspects. Autocratic is not necessarily bad. You will actually then be able to apply one of your uh, uh, one of the tools in your toolbox to the situation that you're in. And don't forget, you are not only a leader in your own organization. You may be a leader in, let's say, community. You may be a leader left in your family. You may be a leader in any other organization that you're part of. So you will have different environments, different uh, uh, different situations where you have to apply leadership. In fact, I've uh, not succeeded in being an autocratic leader with my family. I think that tends to be a very bad uh, thing to do. So the idea is that be aware of the situation that you're in and uh, apply the right leadership uh, style that is useful in your toolbox. Okay, so how do you develop your own leadership skills? Now, I know that a lot of us as entrepreneurs say, hey, you know, we are fully focused on my, uh, I'm fully focused on my own business or growing, I'm surviving. And of course, then I have to take time from family. How do I look at time and developing my leadership skills? What I strongly suggest is that the more leadership environments that you're thrown into, the more different environments that you're thrown in, the more 
you can develop your leadership skills. So therefore you say, look, why don't I look at, let's say, joining a Rotary Club or let's say, you know, one, so let's say uh, volunteering in my school or volunteering to uh, coach the football team. The idea again is that the best thing about joining these organizations like a Rotary or coaching a football team or a school is that these people are not flunky. They're not going to listen to you because of your uh, authority. You need to convince them, you need to charm them, you need to get them excited to actually follow what you suggest. And also don't forget, you also need to become a, get the discipline to actually become a great follower. Sometimes the best leaders are also great followers. Sometimes it's good to actually follow other people and learn from them as well. So again, the, the more projects you get involved in outside your core business, you will actually get a lot more chance to develop more leadership. And some of these other things are quite obvious, like uh, discipline. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that uh, uh, getting involved in projects is a lot more useful than just watching more Netflix or just sort of wasting time. However, another thing you should look at, and this is something that I suggest to a lot of people, is that start looking at what's called a low information diet. That means that a lot of us always want to be up to date with the news. We watch TV news. We uh, uh, we track Twitter, what's going on. We track on uh, LinkedIn and other things. We keep on looking at different sources of information and see if we know more about the world. The problem is that when you think, let's say, okay, look back two weeks uh, before this, right? And what news item was really so important to your life today? So the idea again with discipline is to figure out where do you allocate your time? Do you allocate your time looking at low uh, levels of uh, uh, information sources, wasting time on Netflix, or let's say wasting time on other? Or do you have the discipline to keep on improving yourself? Now that again, that's another talk that you can sort of, uh, that is outside the scope of this conversation. However, the point being that the more discipline you have, the more projects you do, and the more you're aware of the situation around you, and the environment that you're in, you actually will develop your leadership skills. It's not something that you develop overnight. This will be ongoing. I mean, like even when you're 70, 75, 80, you will still be developing as a leader. It's a, it's a journey to go through. So bottom line, I think the question really is, is leadership is a mindset. There's no right answer or wrong answer, but the best thing to do is be aware of the different styles of leadership, be aware of the situation that you're in, and keep on developing yourself to keep on learning more leadership styles and taking these various tools and using them uh, as needed. So I think we, uh, Mike, I think we've hit uh, 42 minutes. So at, at this point, hopefully, if I was interesting enough, we can run some Q&A. Yeah, we'll do that, Akil. Thank you so much. And I think you know, we've been having a great chat in the chat while you've been talking as well about what sort of leader are you? So let me pick up the chat and I'll throw that at you as a, as a question, Akil. So, you know, I'll go right back to sort of, um, gee, going right back here. Uh, Paul, Paul Taval says he's a democratic leader. I said, yeah, me too. Then um, Moira said that she's more of a beginner, transitional, relational, intuitive type of leader. I've said Lundy's actually a strategic leader um, based on your thing. So um, Brenda's then sort of got a, a democratic with a blend of coaching um, then Bruce says the, the wisdom of situational leadership and a when is to be what is the key to it. And then I said, um, yeah, but if you change it a lot, then you become dysfunctional, you come across as dysfunctional. Nobody actually knows which version of you is going to turn up today. And then, um, you know, then Moira's finished up here by saying she thinks attunement is the key. So tuning right. into this. So maybe Akil... What what do you think for the the entrepreneurs that are on this call is a, is a nice blend of leadership in a in an SME, and uh, you know somebody with 
one, two, three, four, five, up to 10 staff. Okay. Well, I would say that, uh, again, it depends on the SME, right? Now, for example, like, let's say if you are uh, running a consulting firm with, uh, let's say, up to 10 people who are all brilliant in their own way and they all have their own ideas, then obviously being democratic or being a coach would work well. But conversely, if you are running, let's say, a uh, technology company where you have to get your programmers to just keep on coding, coding, coding all the time, and they may or may not have a great personality and they just want to sit down quietly and get the work done, maybe you might focus on being a more autocratic leader because at that case, you are then responsible for making sure that you deliver your project on time and on the budget. Again, the point really is to understand your own situation, number one. Number two, think in your mind that okay, I've got my team of five to 10 people. How would I want them to act? So for example, if I want to have my team and say, look, I just want them to basically listen to me all the time and just make sure projects are done without any question, then you know the leadership style will be more autocratic. Conversely, you say, look, I want to actually keep on developing the knowledge workers that I have in my organization. I want them to start coming up with their own ideas. I want them to start independently thinking and maybe coming up with better suggestions as to how our company can grow. Then maybe a coaching democratic process uh, might work better. If you're running, let's say, a, a financial firm, as I mentioned earlier, like, and you say, look, at the end, it's like either earn or die. I mean, again, transaction leadership works. So again, the point I'm trying to make is that you need to first get a sense in your own organization, what are the parameters to success? Number one. Number two, in your mind as a leader, what would you need your team members to do to help you achieve that? Right? Because don't forget, I'm assuming that most of you run your own companies. So therefore, you are, are very clear as to what are the things that your team members need to do to make sure that you're able to hit the targets or the growth that you want. Once you're aware of the dynamics of what your growth targets are and what your team members need to do to help you grow that, then you say, okay, what's the most appropriate leadership style from the toolbox that I see that will uh, enable me to uh, get these uh, my team members to help us achieve the target? The second thing very important is that you might say, hey, you know, yes, I want to develop my coaching style, but you don't necessarily have that confidence that you are a great coach. That's why I said you need to develop your leadership skills. Start talking to other people who may have a great coaching style. There are people around you. There are mentors. There are people who are friends who may be great coaches that you say, yeah, maybe I'd like to sit with my friend, have a beer, have a coffee and understand how do they coach? And maybe I can learn some points from them. Maybe I can read some books. I mean, of course, Octopus is a great uh, environment to get a lot of information out of. The point being is that understand what leadership style you need to apply to the situation that you're in. If you think that you're great at doing, uh, being, being that leader, fantastic. If not, develop that leadership style by talking to people, reading things, getting information sources. So again, no one right answer. No, definitely not. I've got, a, I've got a few questions lined up in my kit for you, and, and then I'll throw over to anybody else to, who wants to ask a question. This question is uh, really for people who are meeting you for the first uh, time. Tell us a little bit about your current businesses and what you're sort of running and what you do, which will give us an understanding of, of what you're leading at the moment. Okay, sure. So uh, I, uh, I run the Shahani Group. Uh, so basically, uh, I run a, a chain of colleges uh, in uh, India. I also have an education technology platform where we run a range of uh, mobile apps to uh, teach kids, uh, uh, higher education kids. We also have a placement firm where we give these kids jobs. Uh, the overall strategy of what we're doing essentially is that, so my doctorate is in, is in employability, what makes people employable, right? So what I did, I took that defined vision as to what makes someone employable. And a lot of what makes people employable is developing their softer skills, like in terms of their communication skills, their teamworking, 
their proactiveness, professionalism, critical thinking, like that, especially for entry-level employees. And what we've said is that let's apply that model to the uh, to a platform that allows us to tra uh, train kids, assess them, place them in a chain. So the colleges allow us to develop these kids' employability through offline courses. So we have a range of degree and diploma courses, right from MBAs to short uh, three-month certificate courses. Those are the offline classes. Online, we also offer the same thing through our mobile apps, again, across uh, India, and of course, so we're now moving to other parts of Asia. And of course, the placement firm in our mind is really we take these kids and place them in companies. Now, what is interesting is that we look at the client as not the student. We look at the client being the recruiter. Because if the recruiter hires more students, then we know for a fact that we've done a great job with uh, the students with us. So we tell the students, look, you're not the client, you are the product. I mean, I sound a little uh, maybe transactional, but what we say is that, look, if we're able to give the best product to the recruiter, the recruiter is more likely to uh, give you a good job with a high salary. So therefore you need to develop yourself as for what the recruiter needs. So what we said basically is that even though we have these three entities, the offline colleges, the online education firm and the uh, placement firm, all of these are there to serve the engine of making kids employable and placing them in jobs. So that's- That's fantastic. And uh, you know, you really do a great job at, at all of that. So that, that's led me to another question. Is there a particular leadership style that works with millennials? Because a lot of people on this call will be having millennials as contractors. I see Bruce has cracked a smile at that one, right? But, um, and you know, millennials uh, do work a little differently than most of the older folk on this call. So is there a particular style that works best with them? All right, so this is like you actually hit uh, uh, so like a raw nerve with me. I'm actually not a big fan of the term millennials, right? And let me talk about why. Most of us, I think, are from Gen X. Remember, right? Uh, I'm Gen X, like maternal let's say people who were born after 1965 and up till, let's say, uh, I think up to uh, 1980 or something like that. So if you remember the 1990s, the good old days, there's a lot of uh, media talking about the Gen Xers, they're slackers, they're all like, you know, they, want, they wear grunge. Then, yeah, if you remember that movie, uh, Reality Bites, that was supposed to be the Gen X movie, right? We were supposed to be slackers. We didn't care about life. We were you know, just lost and we were like all high on something or the other. But the funny thing, I don't think most of us were that. But if we were, we grew up very quickly. So again, and don't forget is that uh, when you talk about Gen X, the kid, uh, the person growing up in 1980s New York is very different from the kid growing up in 1980s South Africa, very different from the kid growing up in 1980s India, right? And we all have different needs things, right? So let's stop taking people under the age of 30 as the same. So basically what you have is that you have younger people. So the assumption is, hey, you know, we need to have a nice environment. We have to give them a need to, you have to give them a reason for working. You have to give them bigger picture stuff. You have to give them like a little more motivation. When we were young, even our time, we were more idealistic. As we got older, we got, uh, got married, we had a mortgage, we had a kid, we, had, we all started getting more and more focused on maybe our careers, right? So I would say for millennials, or let's say if you're working with younger people, yes, two things. One, of course, they tend to be more digital savvy than most of us. So that I think is something that would get them more engaged. And in fact, as leaders, we should actually maybe look at, let's say, learning from them. Because I think this is the first generation where you actually have younger people who know something that we don't. Before, it was always the older people knew more than us, right? So that's one thing. 
Secondly, I think uh, if you let them run with that digital technology and also give them, let's say, a larger picture as to what you're doing. Okay, interesting. So uh, I, had a uh, I was actually uh, 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 consulting Siemens, right? And uh, the Siemens uh, head of HR, global head of HR came to me and said, look, we have a problem attracting younger people into our organization because most of us look at us as very boring and sad. So uh, what I said is, look, ask yourself, what does Siemens do? They say, oh, you know what, Siemens, we make metal equipment. We provide, uh, let's say, this sort of uh, electronics or something like that. I said, look, the problem is that sounds boring. Instead of saying you provide medical equipment, why can't you say, okay, we create the products that save people's lives? So when you tell a younger person, look, you are not selling medical tools, you are actually helping to save thousands of lives. Very different purpose, right? Now, again, it's not even something for millennials, it's something that any employee would benefit from. I mean, for us, we're in education. So it's frankly easy to uh, sort of motivate our people because we tell them, hey, you know, you are changing the lives of uh, hundreds of thousands of kids. In fact, what we do is that we have our own call center where a lot of the callers are just calling and admitting kids uh, for our courses. We always make sure our call center team gets to meet these kids while they're studying, after they've graduated, after they've got their jobs, because the call center person feels that, hey, you know, I'm not just making 100 calls a day, I'm also changing the person's life. And they feel so fantastically happy when there's a kid who's actually got a fantastic job and they tell the call center, you know, thank you, you guys. I got here. So yeah, so I think not, uh, so when I talk about millennials, back to the point, is that maybe a lot of things that will motivate, let's say even people about the age of 35 or 40 would also work with younger kids. Just maybe more tech focused, that's it. But don't treat everyone the same. All millennials are not the same. It's a great answer, Akhil. And I think, you know, the, if, I, if, I, uh, if I take some words out of that, you're talking about transformational leadership. Yeah. So, you know, that's what you're really selling to people. And I, I loved everything that you said. So thanks for saying that. Oh, I've got one more question, then I'll hand over to other people. Um, where do you see leaders going wrong currently in the current world in which we live in? Where, where are leaders going wrong? Okay, well, that requires another one-hour session. But again, I think <laughs> the short answer really is... Not politicians, you know, us politicians. as leaders. <laughs> So I think, again, it's back to the original point is that I think very often applying the wrong type of leadership to the wrong sort of situation, right? So the thing is that uh, a lot of autocratic leaders probably did very, very well in maybe 20, 30 years ago when, uh, you know, when the companies were uh, more bureaucratic and the environment uh, facilitated more autocratic leaders and less focused on developing people. Now, that issue worked very well then, but it doesn't work very well now, especially in a lot of environments. So the idea, again, is that if a leader is not able to scan the local environment and understand what they're trying to do. They may actually apply the wrong type of leadership and actually mess up. And again, I don't think that people are wrong for long or right for long, right? So for example, there are a lot of cases where companies do very well under certain leadership styles and the environment changes, let's say, uh, the, uh, let's say the market changes, a new type of technology comes in and the same leadership style doesn't work anymore. So a uh, classic example, if you remember, uh, Okay, everyone's favorite, Bill Gates, right? So Bill Gates in the 1980s, I mean, Microsoft was the king or queen of their environment, right? I mean, they actually controlled the Windows desktop operating system. They did uh, very well with Microsoft Office, making billions and billions. However, when mobile phones came out, where the technology changed, the style of leadership of uh, Bill Gates and uh, Steve Ballmer did not work anymore. And luckily, they were smart enough to retire at the right time. And Satya Nadella came in. Now, Satya Nadella, is actually has taken one of the old classic technology companies and flipped it around. Satya Nadella said, look, we are now a cloud-based platform that supports businesses, 
right? Yes, we have a legacy Windows business or our uh, Microsoft Office business, but our focus is going to be on Microsoft Azure, buying out LinkedIn and things like that. Such is the develop and uh, uh, Bill Gates are very different niches and styles. So again, it's not that uh, Bill Gates was a better or worse leader than Satya Nadella, but the point is that the environment changed, so therefore the leadership style had to change. Right? So again, so that's really the key thing, that understand the environment, adapt to the leadership right. style. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, so let's go get into questions. More is said here, and I'll, I'll summarize it for you because it's in the chat. Getting the right people in the right roles and communicating with clarity is, um, is, is a great way to lead. And I think one of the things I see is, and, and one of the things I've taken out of this call, Akil, is um, you, you're, you're very intentional in the way in which you strategize your leadership, whereas most of us just lead. So at the moment, we're working with our sales team doing this, then we're on with our you know, other staff doing that, then we're at home with our family doing this, and we think... All of those things, basically, as you said before, and you joked, you know, autocratic leadership doesn't work too well with your family. Um, well, some kids grew up with autocratic leadership, but um, but I think you know, intentionalizing it is very very smart. Um, okay, so any questions by anybody? If we open this up, you can feel free to type them or unmute your microphone. So I've got course, a, I'm, uh, something on bounds, and I'm happy to even uh, give specific answers to a specific situation that you're facing. So maybe in your own organization, if you say, look, I've got this uh, leadership uh, problem happening, so what do you suggest? So yeah, happy to answer anything, thank you. Great. That's, that's very, very good, Akil. We'll see if anybody's got any questions or if people are just absorbing. Um, every school should, uh, Garth says, every school should have a course that focuses on leadership styles. How true, and it's it's interesting because I know you do in your schools focus on on leadership styles and leadership uh, combinations, as does uh, the school in Malaysia that we work closely with with Anne as well. Um, right. But so I think that that's a that's a great point, and uh, a, an interesting question for everybody, just to sort of bring this to a to a close in case anybody's got any final questions is, um, you know, now are you more intentionalizing your own leadership style now because of this call um, or are you basically still sort of winging it because maybe winging it has got you stuck in a couple of situations Bruce I see your hand up so please ask your question well um, I, I think one of the the big errors that I see um, in in myself and many many others is that because we are leaders we have the expectation that we should have all the answers and i think one of one of my big kind of switches that i've seen over the last kind of few years is that a true leader is the person who asks the right questions not necessarily having the right answers and so it's a lot more and i'm just wondering if there's a leadership style maybe it's an umbrella thing called questionable leadership but it's it's not questionable leadership it's asking the right questions of the right people that makes you a great leader so you know it's a thing uh, uh, interesting strategy right there are two ways of defining uh, questioning right uh, socratic questioning so uh, actually i use this uh, to some extent uh, so it's more of a strategy so let me talk about one is you ask your team questions in such a way that the answers that you get tend to lean towards the strategy that you want to implement so it's really more a way of asking the question so that they realize answers that you want them to realize themselves 
and they follow your strategy, right? So that is more a strategic, that's more of a tactical approach. There's another type of questioning, which is more like open-ended questioning where they want, you want them to brainstorm and come up with answers that you may not have thought of or may not actually consider. So again, it's a matter of saying is that when you use questioning, how, what, what's your purpose? Is it that you want to come up with new ideas and then you are more as a follower or just listening to new directions and you may follow what they suggest, which may not be what your thought is? Or are you using questioning for the idea of saying that, look, I want them to realize that my strategy is the best and I just want them to come up with the answer themselves so that they feel good about following my strategy. So questioning is a fantastic strategy, but know why you're using it and what you want out of it. Yeah, very good, Akhil. And, and I think, you know, one of the questions I always used to use when I was running corporates is somebody would come to me and say, boss, we've got a problem. And I'd say, imagine I wasn't here today. What would you do about it? Absolutely right. And then they'd tell me and I'd say, what if that wasn't the best way to go about it? What else could you come up with? Then they'd come up with something else and I'd go, just refine that a bit. And then they'd refine it and go, that's the exact right answer. Well done. Go and implement that. So that was a way of actually training people to stop uh, stop plunking everything on you. And many of us run businesses where our staff go, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? So they're, they're literally asking you to make decisions, which then turns you into an autocratic leader, which may not be the necessarily the best style of leadership that you've got. Do we have any final questions for Akil? Akil, while people are thinking whether they want to ask a final question or not, um, Gus put down there, share a created vision. Um, can you repeat that for us, Mike? Yes, I can. Um, when you ask people, if I wasn't here today, what would you do? And then when they tell you, if you don't like their answer, you think it sucks, you say, okay, well, let's, let's, if that wasn't the right answer, what else could you come up with? That's if it sucks. And if it's half good, you say, okay. And in what ways could you enhance that to get it even better until they get the right answer? Then you're really empowering the staff member, which, um, and giving them confidence as well, which really helps. Uh, so, so actually, just adding up to Mike's point, in fact, uh, there's a very effective leadership strategy called absence. So, for example, like very often, uh, when uh, let's say there's a uh, there's a team member has a certain amount of difficulty, as what Mike said, is that very often they just call you for help and you become sort of like the overall agony aunt or uncle, and you're just sort of helping everything, and everything comes to you. But that gives you absolutely no time for yourself or to do anything else. So what I tend to do sometimes is just be not available. I say, look, I'm actually not going to pick up your phone. I'm not going to answer your email. Sort it out yourself. The flip side of that is making sure that when they do uh, attempt something without your input, and if they mess up, don't chop their heads off. Say, look, this, you made, uh, and then there's no such thing as a mistake. They're saying you made the best decision based on the information that you had around you. So therefore, you made the right decision, but the environment did not support it. As long as you give them the chance to fail and, you know, and learn from that failure, the more absent you are sometimes makes you a better leader. In fact, that's what I tend to do because I've got these, uh, a very large team. I've got around uh, uh, almost 200 people in my organization today and we're growing very quickly in all directions. Very often I just step back and say, look, I'm not going to help you out. You sort it out and give me a result. And if you mess up, fine. Fantastic advice and a great place to, to leave us with today as well, Akhil. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Akhil. Everybody give Akhil a, a round of applause. Well done. And uh, Paula, thanks for your comment. Important to create a learning environment as this co-creates versus a speak up versus, uh, and speak up versus a shut up culture. 
And that's definitely what we don't want as a shut up culture. So I think we've had some great insights today, Akil. Thank you so much for being on the call. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you Thanks, next guys. week. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.